This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Uh, Hamilton Mountain Councillor Terry Whitehead is asked to meet with the Premier uh, in uh, over LRT in Hamilton. A letter posted uh, to the Councillor's website addresses uh, addressed to Minister Del Duca asks questions in regard to the project. Uh, as understandably so, uh, Mayor Fred Eisenberger isn't too happy about all of this and of course would rather to... Uh, put forth a united front on all of this. Uh, that being said, the uh, mayor is busy tied up with uh, the prime minister today. I can understand that. Uh, and uh, as we tried to get a hold of uh, Councillor Whitehead yesterday, he's on vacation uh, in Arizona, I believe, at this point. Uh, so let's bring in uh, former mayor of Hamilton, Larry Diani, and ask his opinion on all of this. He is with us now. Hello, Larry. How are you today? Wait, I was the third choice? Uh, <laughs> no, I, wait a sec. Can we start over, Larry? I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna do that intro over again. No, 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 no. I'm so, pleased to be on. I'm pleased to be on. So I know we were just uh, we just uh, spent some time yesterday uh, videoing another version of the Opinionators on Cable 14, and we were talking a little bit about uh, Donald Trump on that show yesterday. And of course, we all love you know talking about this from afar. Uh, but just wondering because I can't let uh, you go by without asking you this question: If in fact you saw any of the coverage of the dinner last night, which uh, was attended by both the candidates. I did. I saw the coverage. Um, and um, This is the Alfred E. Smith dinner, and this is a dinner uh, which is, I guess, raises money for the Catholic Church, a very traditional uh, dinner that has been going on, I guess, for a, a great deal of time. And this is tradition for the two candidates, I guess, to do this. Indeed. And so it's not for the Catholic Church, but for Catholic charities. Right. Uh, and the money goes towards, uh, apparently, towards uh, the disadvantaged, mostly youth in uh, in New York City. And they raised six million bucks last night, which is a nice little haul to help um, uh, poor kids, especially as we head towards the Christmas season. But yes, I, I, I mean, I, I think I remember snippets of it uh, last year when, uh, or the last uh, presidential election when Mr. Romney and. President Obama were there just before their election, uh, and it was all good-natured and fun. Uh, and I did watch it last night only because of this, um, you know, that they promoted the fact that both Hillary and Clinton and Donald Trump would be there, and they, there they were sitting on either side of the cardinal. And, 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 then, he, and he said apparently that was the iciest uh, seat in the House. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently. In fact, he was criticized. That was one of the lines by Clinton. He was criticized for inviting them both to this event. And uh, his comment was that if he only invited friends, uh, he'd probably be dining by himself, <laughs> which was also a good line. So, so yeah, I, I did watch it and and heard Donald Trump being booed because well, it started off it started off and it was reasonably uh, you know like it normally is. It was reasonably tame, and then it got very nasty. And very there was a, there was a, I mean, there's supposed to be a tongue in cheek uh, humor yeah. element of this. In other words, if you can't say it with a smile on your face, then you're not supposed to say it. And this kind of turned into a full blown campaign rally, almost not quite oh, that. My goodness. But yeah. but boy, it was certainly awkward, wasn't it? It was totally awkward. I mean, he had some good lines as well. The mm -hmm. funniest I thought was when, when he said, I bumped into Hillary, and she turned around and she said, pardon me, and he <laughs> said, well, wait till, wait till I get into office. I thought that was cute. Yeah, yeah. And, and Hillary actually uh, laughed. Yeah. You could see her laughing 
she thought it was funny as well. But then he took a turn yeah. and he became nasty again. And uh, um, and well, anyway, it was too bad. And and Hillary, I thought, did a good job. She was more subtle. She got some shots in as well, but they were clever and they were subtle and uh, uh, but but pointed uh, in some ways. And I can just see that crowd sort of squirming yeah. in there. Because that's not what they bargained, right, when they bought tickets to, to this fundraiser. Exactly. And when, when most of them have a camera on them, uh, it's kind of hard to react, too. Yeah, uh, it was interesting indeed. watching. All right, let's move on. Uh, Hamilton Mountain Councillor Terry Whitehead has, uh, of course, penned a letter to uh, uh, Minister Del Duca in regard to clarity on LRT. Your thoughts on all of this? Well, so you know, just full disclosure, I'm I'm very supportive uh, of LRT. I think we'd be foolish as a city to say no to uh, a billion dollars, uh, an investment of a billion dollars in the city to help improve, improve public transit. And uh, I guess I shouldn't be surprised because Hamilton loves to have these, these fights about big, important issues. Red Hill uh, Expressway, the stadium. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we've had lots of examples of that where we polarize each other. I just didn't think it was going to happen with LRT. But, but you know, I'm now seeing billboards, you know, no LRT in Hamilton across the city. Uh, I, know that, uh, I know that there are people taking hard positions, and there are some councillors taking positions in opposition. Um, and I know I read the mayor's comment. Uh, of course, mayors want everybody to get along and agree with what mayors have to say, because mayors are always right. But I'm biased <laughs> when I say that, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, uh, the, the fact of the matter, though, is that, that councillors around the table uh, have their own minds. They represent their own constituencies. And uh, this councillor felt that he needed to get some things clarified, and he wrote a letter to the Minister Del Duca just asking for some clarification. And I have the letter in front of me. I'm looking at the computer screen right now. I hadn't seen it before, but I have the letter in front of me. And, and he's asking for some clarification. And there's no question that there are some political, well, there are, there are very strong political overtones to the letter, um, not the least of which is this supposed um, uh, request for clarification over a statement that Ted McMeekin made um, on October the 4th, 2016, where he said that LRT money is only for LRT. And the Premier's uh, comment uh, on May the 25th, 2016, when she apparently stated uh, to the CBC Hamilton, uh, it's never been LRT or nothing. I really want to hear what council decision is. Um, so, so that does seem to need some clarification. The Premier seems to be saying one thing, and and the um, uh, MPP McMeekin um, seems to be saying something else now. Much later, and before he said it, perhaps he had clearance from, or at least a discussion, I would assume, from the premier. So that the latest comment seems to be the one that that might be more uh, appropriate to, to to refer to. However, the councillor is asking for some clarification on that, and then he makes some other points as well. So the question is, is this untoward? Is this somehow breaking protocol? Um, well, it's not the first time. It, it may be irksome, uh, but it's not the first time that, that councils will do this. I remember when I was in the mayor's chair and we were debating what to do with the Lister block, uh, that one of the councillors, and, and council had actually made a decision, and one of the councillors went offside and wrote a letter to the then 
Minister of uh, Heritage, uh, and um, and uh, uh, quite apart from what Council had decided, and was perceived to be a hero in some quarters. It irked me that he did that, uh, but he did it, and he had uh, the right to write a letter. That's all he did. Uh, and then we 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 had meetings, and the Lister Block now is a great catalyst and success story in the city of Hamilton. And I'm sure there are other examples. I seem to recall Councillor Ferguson writing a letter uh, about some issues in his area. But haven't well. we already been down this road with LRT? And well, weren't, well, weren't, weren't the, these questions in regard to whether it was LRT or BRT? That was long before the million dollars was awarded. Once the check for a million came in, I thought billion. that that, or sorry, billion came in, yeah. That, yeah. Um, that, that that was for LRT well, because for BRT was much less money, was it not? Right, and I think that's part of the mayor's um, uh, concern and, and irritation is that uh, this whole issue has been settled. Um, we have heard just recently that, in fact, council, by approving a number of things, uh, to reconsider this project now would have to have a supermajority of councillors, a two-thirds majority, not a simple majority, and, and we are spending money today uh, planning for this project. In fact, I was at a luncheon just Monday of this week, an engineering luncheon, uh, where the uh, guest speaker was Paul Johnson, who is the coordinator for LRT in the city of Hamilton. did a wonderful job, by the way, of uh, explaining the project, putting it into context, talking about the engineering, uh, um, uh, very good work that's being done. To, to bring this forward, talked a little bit about the, some of the challenges that will be met as well, uh, but we are we have moved forward, and so now to, to revisit this uh, is um, is. Uh, well, aren't we revisiting it a second time? Because wasn't there a scenario where we wanted, you know, uh, council had to reaffirm its decision on all of this? And there was the clip from the premier where she was laughing and she said, I thought we had already been down this road. And here we are going down the same road a third time. Well, so there are several issues there. One is this is simply a letter written by a counselor asking some questions. Does he have a right to do that? I believe he does. Uh, is it is it irksome to the project um, um, to to have done this and make it seem to those who are writing the check for the billion dollars that there's some uh, dissension in the ranks? Yes, it is irksome uh, because we are much further ahead. However, there are some key points, and one is coming up, I think, next week, October 25th, if I'm not mistaken, uh, where council will have to deal with these issues. Now, they cannot undo the plan, uh, or at least they cannot undo it unless they have two-thirds majority, which is not going to happen because you've got some very strong supporters. Um, uh, but they're going to have a discussion, and they're going to have some recommendation in front of them, and I'm not sure uh, what that is, what it is that they're looking at. But if at this stage, given that the project is going ahead, given that the project that money has been spent, millions of dollars have been spent on the project. Staff has been hired. There's a whole office that's been engaged in settling some of the questions that are being asked. The best thing to, to be doing at this point is to make sure that we do it right, not to see sow uh, seeds of doubt uh, about the project. However, we need to ask, empower our counselors 
to ask appropriate questions as we move this project forward because it's a huge project. It's going to be, at least for the time, that, that there's construction, a disruptive process. It's also in the long term, if we are to believe people like Paul Johnson, and I do believe him, it's going to change how people uh, tra- use public transportation in the city of Hamilton all across the city and how um, traffic moves in major arteries within the city as well. So it's a big project. And for us not to allow our councillors to ask questions about that process and its implementation, I think would, would be doing a disservice to councillors as well. However, to have councillors circle back, and by the way, this happened all the time, and I was hurt by it when, when we were making decisions about the Red Hill Expressway. There were some fifth columnists within council who were doing everything they could to undermine a project that had cost us far many more millions of dollars than uh, at that point uh, that were being spent and this project has had spent on it. But, the, you know, the nature of the democratic rule around council is that those councillors had the right to do what they did um, and, and ask those questions, even though I think they were doing uh, the city a disservice, as we saw from this highly successful uh, project that was eventually implemented in the city. So what is to come of this letter to Del Duca? Well, who knows? <clears throat> I mean, a letter was written to the minister, and hopefully the minister will respond to it. But, you know, there are some questions that, you know, does it matter um, at this point that Mr. McMeekin said one thing and the Premier seemed to say at an earlier time something different? The point right now is that the project is going forward. The point right now is that the billion dollars, and the check's not here, but the billion dollars has been earmarked for this project. And so to embarrass the government uh, by pointing out this disparity in opinion, at different times, mind you. Um, what's that going to earn us if 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 the premier and, and the and, and the and the MPP are are saying something which is a, a, a little different? How does that help Hamilton to embarrass them? Um, they would probably say, no. The premier said this at that point. I said this at a much later point. I've had a uh, I've had a, a discussion with the premier. You folks in Hamilton have approved this project. You've asked some money. You've engaged Metrolinx. You've struck a, min- uh, a, a memorandum of understanding with Metrolinx to, uh, to, to carry this pro- program to fruition. So why are you asking these questions again? So do you see where I'm coming from, Scott? Mm-hmm. I think the counselor has the right to ask the questions, but are there the right questions to be asked at this stage of the game? is open to some question as well. Larry Dietti has been with us, former mayor, city of Hamilton. Larry, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, the prime minister actually in town today, as I mentioned, uh, met with uh, the mayor and was up at Mohawk College and such. Uh, And he is facing growing calls to uh, confirm his uh, commitment to electoral reform. You might remember during the election campaign, he said that this would be the last election that would be run this way and we would move on to electoral reform. Uh, He has uh, since been saying, since been quoted as saying uh, that uh, he feels, and whether he was being uh, trivial about this or not, 
basically said to a French newspaper that, uh, you know, Can- Canadians don't really seem to be interested in this, and maybe it's because they're happy with the government that they got, which basically means, you know, uh, everybody wants to change the system until it is used to elect them. We're going to talk about that and, of course, uh, the government and its transitional payments for health care to the provinces. Joining us now, Henry Jasek, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Hello, Henry. How are you today? Just great, Scott. Before we go on, I have to ask you... I to get your Trump update, what are your thought? What were your thoughts on the debate? Uh, anything you want to add to this discussion? Well, I, I, I mean, it's really become a farce in the U.S. I mean, really, the, I mean, it, it, it's just incredible uh, to to listen what goes on, on on what's supposed to be a serious debate. And uh, yeah, I mean, I I just think people are in just sort of a shock of, of 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 the type of person that the Republican Party nominated, and I think most of the Republican parties in shock that they actually nominated this guy. To run for the most important political job in the world. Uh, the last question, or one of the last questions the moderator asked was in regard to respecting the outcome of the election. Of course, that's what seems to be getting all of the attention, despite, a, a, you know, a, a much better performance for Trump in the last debate than the first two. Uh, everyone's talking about this, and when asked the question, he's, he basically said that he would keep everybody in suspense and, and, and wait till later to answer the question. How sensitive an issue is this? How important an issue is this? Well, I mean, there's always been a consensus in the U.S. and in most other democracies is that in order to have order in society you have to have a quick decision after an election that the worst thing you can do is have indecisive you know be indecisive and not really know who the government is after an election because your your chances were disorder and especially in the united states if it looks to you know various people who are enemies of america and america's policies and western policies uh, and it looks like the leader of the of the free world or the, the or Western world, uh, you know, is indeterminate, and there's no real government there. Then the worry is, then people will try to take advantage of it, someone like Putin or somebody else. So, generally, the view was is that you know, even though uh, you know you don't, you may feel that you've been cheated out of the election. You, there's a re, there is a time at which you have to say, okay, I'm not, you know. No matter how I feel about how fair the election was to me, uh, if it looks like my opponent is the one who's been picked, uh, been elected, I, sh- I, I really need to go along and, and uh, do the right thing for the country and admit defeat and congratulate my opponent. He is trying to use the, uh, the, the Florida example with Al Gore uh, as his reasoning for doing this. Does that hold water? Well, I mean, I th- we do have to recognize there's in times in the U.S. that it may very well be that the person who should have been elected president wasn't. I think, uh, you know, from what I can tell in that particular Bush and uh, Gore election, that probably at the end of the day when all the studies were done, and there were three studies that lasted three years on this, Gore probably should have been awarded Florida, but you can't wait two to three years before you get the right decision. And so it became a point at which you had to have a president, and at the time that a decision had to be made by one of the two candidates to concede, Gore did the right thing, even though, as I said, there were very extensive studies done two to th- over two to three years where people had the luxury of time, and they, re- and they came up with the conclusion that really probably Gore should have won Florida and should have been president. But you don't have two to three years to make that decision. And there's other times in 1960 election, um, you know, if somebody looked closely over a long period of time at the state of Illinois, which Kennedy won, 
maybe he shouldn't have won that. Maybe Nixon should have won it, and Nixon should have been president. Hmm. So, you know, there these have happened at times, but an important part of elections is you have to have a result pretty quickly so you know who's in charge and who won. Otherwise, you can have disorder, you know, in, in, in the uh, society. Uh, the next day, uh, everyone thought he was uh, going to clarify, and he said he would accept the decision and then qualified it by saying, if I win. How does that add fuel to the fire? Well, I don't think, first of all, my expectation right now, given what I know and what I think most people think, uh, know, is it's going to be a landslide. So it's not going to be really open to debate whether it was close or whether it was unfair or not, because it's going to be so overwhelmingly against him. And, uh, you know, in generally, you generally like a clear decision from the voters really quickly. So the person who lost knows they lost and they concede very quickly. So everybody knows there's going to be continuity in the, in the presidency. All right, let's move on to uh, electoral reform, which I'm not sure a lot of people are really captivated about. But uh, Prime Minister Trudeau said when he was campaigning that this was the last election that was going to be run under this system and that uh, electoral reform was on its way. Now he sort of seems to be easing off on this, alluded to the fact that maybe it's because people like the government that's in charge now. Your thoughts on all of that? Yeah, well, I think that may be partially true. I I thought it was a very rash promise that he made. I, I thought that was, God, I would have never counseled them to say uh, this is going to be the last election under the present system because I mean this is a system we've had for so long and my feeling is there's large large numbers of, uh, numbers of people who think the system they like the way the system is now they may not yeah. think it's perfect but they like it better than any other kind of system and I would say I was a moderator at a debate in August we had it was a, a discussion to our discussion one evening at the McMaster Center of Innovation on Longwood, and this was held, uh, called on, uh, on behalf of um, uh, the MP for um, the west end of the city, uh, Philomena Tassi, and she asked me to moderate this debate, and we had a little, you know, we advertised it, and it was mentioned in the spectator. We had over 100 people come out, and there were a lot of thoughtful comments, but the main comments were what we have to slow down and really do this carefully, because we don't want to jump into a system that we really don't want or may have very negative consequences. So, and these are people who really cared about the system, and they were all over the political spectrum. We had, I had people from the far left, the New Democratic Party, the Liberal Party, the Conservative Party, and we have all sorts of views there. But I think the common view was, not everybody agreed with it, but a common view was, let's go slow on this. This is way too important to just jump in and change very, very quickly just because you've just because the Prime Minister promised that there would be change. We have talked about this in the past. Uh, is there an appetite for this? I mean, how long do we have to, to Well, I think this? most people don't, want, don't care about this issue, don't want to change. Yeah. I mean, there is a very small number of people, like those 100 people who showed up for this meeting, and, you know, they're very good and they're very interested in it, but they are unrepresentative of the general population. They care about it. I care about it. But I know 99% of the population doesn't care about this issue because they think there's a lot more important issues to, to be had. And I do think there's something to what some people you know, have, uh, have said, including Trudeau, although he didn't draw out all the conclusions. Right now, Trudeau, amazingly, is still on his honeymoon. Mm-hmm. And people like the outcome, and they're pretty happy with the government. But, and of course, it's easy to be happy with the government. The other two parties don't have a real leader, and you know mm-hmm. they're disorganized. So he's had this long honeymoon. People are feeling relatively 
good about the federal government right now, and when they do, they don't want to change, you know, they don't feel a great need to change the system because they sort of feel, well, I'm, things are working out now, so the system we had that put this government into power is probably okay. And that's how I think probably how most people think about it at this point. So, uh, you know, it may bubble up again, but I don't, even when people don't like the government, I'm not so sure many of them really want to change the system. Uh, do you think we should change the system? Well, you know, that's uh, there are benefits of doing different things. I personally wouldn't mind a ranked ballot. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And it's not all that different in many ways than what we have now because we still would have the territorial representation. When you get to proportional representation, people want, you know, they like to have somebody who's representing a certain territory or, or, or geography. So, you know, you live in an area and I know who my MP is. You get into a system of proportional representation, even if it's only for part of the people who are elected, they're elected from, you know, maybe the entire province or the entire country or something, and you don't, people lose their connection, can lose those connect, their connection with those kinds of people. Now, if you have a country, you have, we have countries that have a history of that, so the people are used to it. The problem is we're used to a very different type of system. We're used to a system of these constituencies that are geographically based. That's part, that's our history, and you know people are so accept that as as an important part of democracy. And getting people to think about a different system, I think, is is very difficult. All right, let's move on to uh, health care. Uh, of course, the pre- uh, the uh, feds have announced that uh, they're thinking more along the lines of a 3% transfer for health care, uh, which is still an increase, but it was at, at 6%. And, of course, uh, health ministers and premiers are upset about this. Uh, the feds sort of leading to the idea that they want to have more detail on where this money is going because I guess it just goes into general coffers. Uh, at this point. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, Wanting to know how the money is spent, that almost sounds like something the conservatives would say. Well, I mean, I think the federal government, we heard this from the Paul Martin government, too, as well. The federal government, you know, is is going to give a great deal of money to the provinces on health care, which it does. It wants, what it wants to be able to go to people and say, we're giving this money to improve the quality of health care. Their big fear is, and it's a you know, a realistic fear is that it's just going to go in to maintain the programs we have. It's not going to result in any changes, and it's really not going to in any way dramatically uh, increase the quality of medical care. Now, from the province's point of view, they look at, you know, the costs, and they'll say a number of things. We have a population that's getting older, so they require more services, so uh, a lot more, so that's much more than the price of uh, of inflation. We have, uh, we have, our dollar has gone down in recent years, and a lot of the medical equipment, medical supplies are bought outside the country, the U.S. especially, and that, that so, they, so the price of that stuff has gone up a lot more than 3%. Meanwhile, you, you know, you have more people who need medical care, and so they, they, their view is that, you know, 6% or more is much more realistic just to basically keep up with these problems of higher costs and more people needing medical care. So there are, you know, so the the two levels of government have a, you know, sort of different goals here that I think they're going to have to work out. And, it's, and you know, 3% from the federal government to improve the quality, I mean, we can certainly say it was great. Anything they can do to improve the quality is wonderful. But the, the financial situation of the provinces uh, in dealing with the problems of, you know, that I just mentioned, 
uh, is, uh, you know, it's very difficult to do great increases in quality uh, with just 3%. Now, I'm sure, you know, the government, the governments are always tweaking the system to have uh, uh, increased quality and, to, and try to keep the costs as low as possible. But there are real limits there. I mean, I do think things get better, but, of course, what people see is they go into the hospitals and they see fewer nurses and they see longer wait times and they're very unhappy. So, uh, and and if and quite frankly, from the federal government point of view, they know that if people feel that the, the health systems are not working well, when they come up for re-election, people will take it off, you know, out on them, even though they're not the primary right. deliverers. But they will they expect the federal government to give enough money to the provinces to make health care, you know, work and to be to be better. So it's a it's a it's a difficult problem and I don't think either side is right. I can understand the goals of both sides, but you know, they they both they both have, you know, a good point to make, but it's a it's a difficult situation to you know, to to improve the system unless you you really fund the fund the uh, fund the pressures that are there. Uh, is it a bad thing that the fa- the feds want accountability? They want to know where the money is going, or is that just a smokescreen? Oh no, no. Well, they they should demand that, and uh, they. I mean, it is good to constantly ask the provinces, "Are you making the system better, and how are you doing it?" And to be specific. And I, so I have no trouble with the federal government or even people in society demanding that the that the uh, you know the people running the healthcare system at the provincial level provide that information to everybody the federal government and and to the people i just think there are you know limits to how much you know, improvement you can get over a short period of time i think we constantly do get improvements but they are they are improvements that people have to accept which often means there's fewer personnel delivering these things and that the um that the uh, you know that uh, you you have to pay the costs that are necessary today to take care of people, and you can't always make those great changes that that improve things right away. And you have to be patient, but you have to constantly work at it. But on the other hand, if you don't tell people they have to work at it, then they just sort of do things the the way they've always been doing them. Considering there, and on that point, considering that the the population is aging, I mean, obviously the demand for each year for more money is just going to increase. Uh, Is that the answer or do we need to look at a whole new plan, a whole new structure to handle an aging population? Well, uh, what we're doing, and and I feel lucky to be at McMaster University because we're doing a lot of research on that here, the uh, essentially a lot of work is being done now to basically keep people in their homes. You know, the most expensive yeah. thing with aging population is if they move into institutional care. So uh, retirement homes would be the, the the least expensive, but then into nursing homes and then into hospital beds, which are very expensive. But if you can keep people in their homes, and especially to keep them mobile, that is keep give them a way, an incentive to sort of keep their health up so they can be mobile and walk around and therefore live in their homes. If we can do that, we can we can save a tremendous amount of money. But the problem is the provincial government, the federal government have to pay money for home care. They have to have, be able to have somebody come in and make sure that seniors are doing what they they should be doing to try to maintain their health and to stay mobile. But that's really the challenge. Uh, you know, we're doing a tremendous amount of research on that here at McMaster, and it was 
You know, recently there was an announcement just two days ago of uh, our chancellors giving 15 million more dollars on our aging studies here. And these doctors that we have here are trying to constantly figure out how, if you can keep seniors healthy, healthier longer, and keep them out of those nursing homes and hospitals, we 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 can cut our costs. But we have to, we have to basically work with seniors in the homes to make sure they're able to stay in their homes and they're able to stay mobile. For the most part, healthcare a provincial issue. The money just you know portions of the money coming from the feds. Uh, is this do do we need something on a national platform, or is it better to have each province? figuring it out for themselves. Well, we couldn't, I mean, it would be impossible, I think, at this point to have the federal government take it it all over and be the main providers. Um, And even even when you look at the provinces, a lot of people would say, and we have changed some institutions, say that even to have Toronto, uh, the capital city, you know, the government in Toronto manage the entire province is maybe a bit too cumbersome because Mm -hmm. there are special needs around. I mean, the needs of people in northern Ontario... Uh, in order to have good health care may be very much different from the needs of the people in Hamilton and Toronto, or people in rural areas may have different kinds of health care needs than the people who live, say, in the city of Hamilton. Uh, you, you, do, you need to have oftentimes local strategies uh, that, that, um, that essentially try to you know, reduce the costs and increase the quality of health care. And sometimes it's difficult to get people to accept it. I mean, one of the hardest things for people to accept is that, uh, you know, small local hospitals oftentimes cannot provide uh, really good care and that you're much better off of going to a major center, even if it's a, it's farther away from your home, because you're likely to get much better medical care. That, uh, the, you know, the, the centers, the large centers off produce so much better. I mean, we, we know this fairly well. They produce much better outcomes for health care. On the other hand, people feel more comfortable when their little local hospitals take care of them because they're close to home. Hmm. People don't want to get too far away from their homes. And that's, I mean, that's the whole drive why we know people will feel best of all if they can stay in their homes. And that's why home care is so terribly important. Henry Chasick has been with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau facing growing calls to confirm his commitment to electoral reform. Also, uh, the province is wanting more money for health care. Henry, thanks for the time and insight. As always, much appreciated. Okay, very good. Always good talking to you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, we all remember uh, last summer, of course, when we heard the tragic news that uh, Gord Downey had brain cancer and uh, their latest tour for the Man Machine Poem Tour uh, would be, in fact, the last one for the Tragically Hip. Uh, They decided to do one more farewell tour right across the country, uh, ending up in Kingston. And, of course, uh, as you all know, those tickets were pretty much gone as fast as they went on sale. A lot of people very, very upset about this. Uh, Tickets which were starting, I guess, at $50 uh, were going through the roof, so to speak, when it comes to uh, resales. Now we are finding out uh, that two-thirds of the tickets for the Tragically Hip Tour went to computer bot scalpers. So uh, as a result, and this was uh, something, a CBC report coming out of uh, CBC's Marketplace, uh, that being said, there's always a politician on board that wants to try to fix this, but really, is there anything that can be done? To talk more about all of this, Dean Budnick is with us, co-author, Ticketmasters, The Rise of the Concert Industry and How the Public Got Scalped, and editor-in-chief of Relux Magazine. He is with us now. Hello, Dean. How are you today? 
Hey, Scott, fine, thank you. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Uh, can you outlaw ticket bots? Can you can can we fix this? Well, one can try. I, I think if one looks at the fact at how successful they have been in defying uh, a, a company that has been aggressively attempting to stop them, one might question how ultimately what the result will be. I mean, they're. The individuals who are utilizing these bots and the people who are creating them are rather crafty. Mm. And so I do think it'll be something of a challenge. And then ultimately, too, there's the question of, you know, to what extent are governmental resources properly applied and how much time and energy and expense does one want to allocate to this particular problem, which invariably I think will be come into the mix when people are thinking about some form of regulation. Of, of these computer bots. Is this about trying to regulate uh, these bots and technology, or is this about allowing tickets to be brokered? Uh, governments, you know, local governments will allow these sorts of services to go on, middleman, ticket brokers, uh, things like StubHub, what have you. Is that the problem? Is it about the bots and the technology, or is it about, well, don't create a marketplace where people can do this? Well, I do think ultimately the largest issue is that people know that they can resell tickets online and that they're capable of doing it anywhere, almost around the world. You, if you're, if particularly, I'm in the United States, I could buy tickets to just about any of those shows if I had been able to up in, up in Canada and, and then turn around and flip them on a resale market, such as StubHub or others. And I think really until that's resolved or people decide that that's fine, in some manner, shape, or form, this problem ultimately is going to recur. So are we wasting our time trying to chase uh, a, you know, a technological way to stop this, or is it about regulation? Is it about deciding whether you want middlemen or ticket brokers to be, to be licensed? Yeah, I mean, for what it's worth, from my perspective, I do think it's a challenge. You know, it's a bit like trying to capture... Um, a ghost or, or something that's going to be exceptionally difficult to lay one's, one's fingers on, what I would push for is just a little bit more transparency in the process overall. Now, the, the word has come out that ticket bots, you know, allegedly were responsible for, for securing two-thirds of the available seats. But what's not entirely clear to me is two-thirds of what? Two-thirds of the seats that were available during the general public on sale? And if it's that, that's actually only a small percentage of the tickets that went on sale for any of these shows. Because you have to remember, in addition to the general public on sale, there also were a series of pre-sales to all of these shows. There was a fan club pre-sale. There was an American Express cardholder presale. Mm -hmm. There was a Facebook presale. There was a Live Nation presale. There was a Live Nation mobile app presale. So through all of those presales, individuals will, were able to purchase tickets and sort of limit the, num the amount of inventory that was ultimately available for the general presale. So, so what I think might be a wise first step is just to allow the public to have some idea of what, how many tickets are available at what stage of the process. And I think that public awareness would be a great first step toward 
discerning whatever we want this larger public policy decision to be. So uh, that being said, uh, do you think any do you think anybody involved in the business side of this wants that information released? Because I mean, the only thing worse than not being able to get a ticket is when you go on at exactly the right time at 10 a.m. or whenever it is supposed to start. That say 50 percent of the tickets are already sold. Right, or, or, or frankly, honestly, more than 50% yeah. in some instances. No, well, of course they don't. They don't want, but I mean, ultimately we have to decide what, what is the public policy here? What are we going to do? How do we want the government to engage this particular problem? And so I do think that's why Ticketmaster always emphasizes bots, because they're trying to deflect hmm. some of the other pressures on ticket inventory. I think it's much easier in certain respects it's a lot sexier to say well there's this problem with computer bots and let you know let people try to deal with that. Let legislators try to take that on in some manner shape or form. But if you really want to get at the problem and address it and ultimately discern what's going on, I think one has to look at what the ticket inventory is and how it's being allocated. So, no, I mean, I think there are powerful forces that don't want that to take place. People that have a lot of money and lobbyists on their side, and they're, they're going to try to, they would actively discourage that and say the problem is actually bots. And it's not to say that there aren't bots. Bots are frustrating. They are designed to bypass the means that normal ticket bot, would-be ticket buyers have. However, there certainly are, are a lot of other factors and considerations going on here as well. Obviously, it's going to depend on the show, but you said higher than 50%. I mean, because again, is, is the problem here VIPs or packages, or is it bots? I mean, if, if, if over half the tickets uh, that, that people, you know, a 10,000-seat venue, if only 5,000 seats are even available when the tickets go on sale, uh, it obviously seems that the VIP packages and all that sort of stuff are just as big a problem as the bots. Or, as, it, as you're saying, is it just a case of transparency? They just have to tell everybody ahead of time that, no, there's not 10,000 seats available for this show. There's only five. Well, what I think, though, at least if you could tell people that there's, you know, there's not actually 10 there might be. Well, yeah, and I'll be honest with you, I looked at the ticket manifest for a Taylor Swift show in Nashville a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and less than 10% of those tickets really? were actually on sale during the initial on sale. But what I think is that if the public is aware of that and understand what's going on, and if the legislatures are aware of that and understand what's going on, maybe then with some reasonable policy can follow. I'm not saying you need to do that, and it's not very satisfying in many respects for anyone. You know, no one really wants to know how the sausage is made, I suppose, but at least if individuals understand that, I think then just a, a clearer and more effective public policy can ensue. I mean, listen, they can try to pass laws that make ticket bots illegal, and I'm sure invariably a few people will be caught because, you know, they'll be a little sloppy in how they, probably not in how they employ them, but how they then resell the tickets. That that'd be ultimately how you probably discover what's happening, and that's really messy and complicated and expensive. You could do that, but I, I think it might be, in terms of the public's general interest, it, it might be wiser if everyone understood exactly how all of this works, mm. what's going on, where the tickets are going from the get-go, and then you know decide if, the, if this is the best resolution or if this is even going to be a meaningful 
resolution. Because I promise you that if there weren't ticket bots associated, you know, employed for any of these tragically hit performances, this still would have been tens or, or more likely hundreds of thousands of people who would be equally frustrated. Why do they bother with VIPs or packages or any of that stuff? Why not just let the, the tickets sell? Well, I think part of that is if you look at how artists generate revenues in this day and age, right? Record sales are mm. not what they used to be. Yeah. So many uh, performers secure their ability to continue out there on the road and make a living by through their live performances and through what they can bring home through their live shows. And what has happened in the past few years is increasingly artists have become aware how much their tickets are selling for on the secondary market. And so one way to at least generate a little bit more revenue for the person who <clears throat> arguably deserves it, the individual who is you know, performing, mm-hmm. the, the musicians, uh, is through these VIP tickets that cost a little bit more, but that money, at least you know, for the most part, is going directly to the artist. And I think, you know, there, there, there's something that I think a lot of people feel is a little bit fairer, or certainly the artists and their management and their agents do, rather than just seeing this money fall to individuals who are, uh, you know, reselling tickets on the secondary market. What about the bands? What sort of recourse do they have here? How do they feel about this? I was surprised during this hip tour, the band was silent on all of this. Well, I, I really do think it's tricky. I think a lot of times artists aren't entirely aware yeah. of what's going on because that's why you have management, that's why you have agents who sort of protect you from all of that. No one wants to really think about that on a, on a day-to-day basis. I think they might not even know the particulars. But above and beyond that, listen, there, there's certainly, once you go down the rabbit hole, there are all of these other pre-sales that are involved in the process. And by the way, I'm not saying that the pre-sales aren't perfectly reasonable. You know, you want to have a, a fan club that can get tickets. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it makes sense for other fans who have American Express cards or who, you know, participate in mobile platforms or Facebook and the like to get tickets. Those are still your true fans. But, you know, once you, once you start to think about that and explore it, I, I do think it becomes difficult. And I think a lot of the artists don't even know, again, the particulars, because that's not what they do. They're here to inspire us with their, with their music, not with their business acumen. Hmm. What about the ticket sellers? What about the ticket masters of the world? They can't be happy about this because they're losing, are they not? Or are, as long as the ticket is sold, what do they care? Well, right, so... Th- that that's sort of challenging. On one hand, all the Ticketmaster's job is is to sell tickets. So if they sell out tickets to a show and they can do so rapidly, all the better for them. On the other hand, they don't want the perception from the public that somehow the system is being gamed. They want everyone to believe that everything is on the on the up and up. And you know, all things being equal, Ticketmaster would be happy if if it would be. Other than the fact, you know, there are times when Ticketmaster has is part of some of these deals uh, in terms of pre-sales and the like, and maybe they might think it seems a little bit unseemly to certain members of the public if they understood the nature of that. But I think for the most part, Ticketmaster would like people to think that it's altogether fair. 
but their job is to sell tickets. So when tickets are sold, they've mm-hmm. done their job. So, you know, there's a limit, I think, ultimately to how far they want to, they'd want to extend themselves. Dean, we've been talking about this for an awful long time. This certainly isn't a new problem. Do you think we're going to see changes? Boy, that's, that's an interesting question. And occasionally there are some rumblings down in Washington, D.C. There's, a, there's a, an anti-bot bill that has been proposed and may ultimately pass down here this year. But it, it, I, I'm not sure. There really are so many facets to this, and there are so many actors involved and so much money on the line. And a lot of the individuals who are responsible for, for, for this money, uh, they have lobbyists on their side. It's very rare that the general public does, hmm. a- advocating for them, and that ultimately can be a challenge. So I, I, I don't know. And then, by the way, on top of everything... You know, when you get to the larger question about the secondary market and how, what right do people have to sell and resell, to resell tickets, should we limit them? What about just your average consumer if he or she can't go to a show on a given night? Should we let that person resell their ticket? And how much should they be able to receive on top of what the original face value of the ticket was? I mean, that's a, and again, how much does it cost to police all of this? There are a lot of complicated issues that are intertwined. And to be frank, and I wish I didn't have to say this because I know it's frustrating for a lot of people, I don't think there's any easy solution coming in the near future. What about just making the reselling of tickets for profit illegal? I mean, Manitoba up here, province up here, uh, is the only province in Canada where it still is uh, illegal. Does that change the game? Well, in theory, the answer is yes. But Again, in terms of enforcing that, the costs of enforcement can get rather high if you're going to mm-hmm. allocate a number of people, let's say, to go on all of the platforms and try to prevent that. I mean, then the question is, you know, how do you, how do you want to utilize your government and, your, and, and the police in some way? Is that the best way to handle that? And then on top of that, there are some people who just feel on principle that a free market should be a free market, yeah. and that when you own something, mm-hmm. you should have the right to resell it, that there aren't a lot of instances in which you're not allowed to resell something that you have. Again, it's, it's a public policy question that I think people have to decide and really think about. But at some level, there are a number of consumer advocacy groups who sort of become uncomfortable once they're told that, cons- that individuals aren't going to have the right to resell something that arguably is in their possession and that they own. Dean Budnick has been with us, co-author, Ticketmasters, The Rise of the Concert Industry and How the Public Got Scalped, and editor-in-chief at Relics Magazine. Dean, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Sure. You're welcome, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.